0: Let me pray for us as we uh, join together. Our Lord, please, will you make the thoughts of our hearts, will you make the words of our mouths to be pleasing and wise and deep and true and good and helpful and nourishing and beautiful and all things good. will you make us over into the image of your very self, that we might be of genuine aid one to another, that we would be men and women who walk with each other, who bear with each other, who care for each other, who are willing to, to be both very tender and very bold in the way we relate to each other, all the ways you are in your most merciful and powerful redemption. Would you help us now? And we pray in the name of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, understanding biblical counseling. That's a big task in a small space. Uh, let me begin uh, with where Tim, Tim Lane left off. Uh, I thought he left us with a very significant point that might have slipped by quickly and I wanna make sure it doesn't slip by. It's the relationship between the simple and the complex. It's a huge issue when it comes to counseling. Let me give a quote, one of my favorite quotations from a 19th century uh, oh. scholar. I would not give a fig for the simplicity on the near side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the far side of complexity. That was Oliver Wendell Holmes. And what he's saying there is that on the near side of complexity, all the troubles and brokenness and confusion and ambivalence and chaos in an exceedingly complex world the near side of that is simplistic but on the far side is simple and I would give my life for simple it uh, Jesus is simple and he is never simplistic so when Jesus Christ says just for example uh, you serve either God or mammon That, we could use that in a simplistic way. But that is a simplicity that actually handles all the complexities of time and history and investment bankers on the one hand and uh, people starving in South Sudan on the other and every one of us in this room. There is something about the simplicity. You serve either God or mammon that touches every single person's life Profoundly has this ability to adapt meaningfully to every single human complexity. And that is the sort of thing that I hope we catch together. The Bible can certainly be used simplistically, right? We've probably all done it. We've all had it done to us probably and, uh, or seen it done. But the, in principle, there is a depth in Scripture, to which nothing else can go. The reason why is that it is the very depths of God himself before whom all are open and laid bare, before the eyes of whom with, with whom we have to do, that they, the one who lays us bare and searches every crevice of what a human being is is the same God who speaks a word that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It, uh, so in principle, there is nothing that goes as deep as the analysis, the perception, the orientation, the hope, the critique, the encouragement that the Bible gives to us. Oh, oh, wait, where are we here? Oh, dear. We loaded the wrong one. (laughs) So let's see. I may need help here because I am not. I thought I was starting off well I hope your prime minister doesn't doesn't do this sort of thing <laughs> okay. think, okay. wait yes the um, so it's actually what I meant to say which I'm actually talking about is how scripture connects to life and uh, I thank you for your gracious pardon of me there I here's an odd picture that I want to start with those of you who can't see it let me describe it on one side is this from outer space a picture of the of the of the globe with, you know, that, that blue marble hanging in space. Uh, and what I'm intending that side of the picture to capture is what you could call the high and holy and wondrous truths of Christian faith. Who is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? What are his plans? How does he run history? The creation of the world, the nature of sin and the fall, the redemption of, all, of our souls and the salvation of Christ, the call to love and so forth and so forth and so forth and so on. These high and holy truths of Christian faith And on the right side of the picture is this schematic of the underground system that ends up right where we are. And in fact, Westminster is down in the lower right quadrant of that schematic. And I'm envisioning that schematic as capturing something of the woes and troubles of life, of the actual personal and interpersonal troubles and situations that people go through, the things that break down inside a person, The things that break down between people, the things that break down around us, the kinds of symptom clusters that earn a person, a diagnostic label, a syndrome, a dysfunction, a disorder. The uh, different ways, by the way, simply, though they're quite fancy words, all they simply say is, this ain't working. This is a problem. uh, But there are these things that get, they, they earn labels, the various protocols and professionals that our culture designates. As the ones to intervene and treat. And by that line down the middle, with the question mark, is do these two things connect? Do they connect? Does what you might say the cosmic connect to the mundane? Do the great high truths of our faith connect to the absolutely minuscule troubles of people? And I would assume that every one of us in this room actually knows firsthand that they do connect. Because it's what makes us Christians, right? It, we, people don't come to faith by reading theology books or uh, reading the Apostles Creed or uh, some kind of high level abstraction and generality about the nature of Christian faith uh, through a catechism and so forth. What happens that makes someone a Christian is something that God says actually speaks into your life. It touches you and it usually touches the sorts of things Tim mentioned It usually touches situational variables, aspects of suffering and hardship and grief and heartache and struggle. It touches who you are, your unbelief, your sins, your self-centeredness, your guilt, your shame, and so forth. And it reveals something about God himself that actually connects. And connects, you might say, heaven to the underground uh, of our lives. Not everyone believes that. Uh, a, a man who is a sincere Christian, um, but does not believe that scripture can really uh, provide much for, uh, for counseling, put, the, put his views this way. While the Bible provides us with life's most important and ultimate answers, as well as the starting points for knowledge of the human condition, it is not an all-sufficient guide for the discipline of counseling. The Bible's inspired and precious, but it is a revelation of limited scope, the main concern of which is religious in its presentation of God's redemptive plan for his people and the great doctrines of the faith. Now, there's a a grain of truth in that, to be sure. But what he is completely missing is that, those, is that this Bible that we have, the way it presents that plan of redemption and these great doctrines is in a thousand little micro stories about people who sin and suffer and struggle and change and are met and transformed. Because the Bible is fundamentally not this high book overarching the universe. The Bible is a book that incarnates, that walks the ground, that touches human life. It's a book of It's a ministry book, right? It's a practical theology book. The Bible incarnates, you might say, the same way Jesus Christ incarnates, fully human, fully divine, touching where human beings live and so forth. And that connection is the thing that I want, that connecting point between the truths of scripture and the way life lived plays out is what I hope I can speak to in our time together this afternoon. I want to start in what might seem like an odd place. I want to start with the hymn that we just sang. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And uh, again, those of you who can't see it, it's, it's the last page of your uh, brochure. Uh, your leaflet has, that, has the words. I'm highlighting just a couple of lines out of, several lines out of this hymn. And I want us to think about the way that a hymn might actually connect into the nitty-gritty of daily life because obviously neither you nor I, our details of life, the places you struggle or I struggle, are not in this hymn. And yet, when you slow it down, when you think about it, our lives are in this hymn as they are in all the great hymns, which is why they're great and why people sing them over centuries. uh, Consider, for example, the the lines I've highlighted in the first stanza. We go not forth alone against the foe. Completely nonspecific. And then you stop to think about it. You think of the way in which Scripture variously comes at the enemies and enmities that you face in a broken world. For example, the foe that is the last enemy, the imminence of death and all the shadows that lead to it. We go not forth alone against the last enemy, um, the one my mother is facing as she's extremely frail. There's the enemy who is the enemy of our souls, the the, 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 the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, there's one who hates us, there's one who behind the lies and the murders and the betrayals and the sins, there's say an arch liar and an arch sinner. There are the enemies that happen, the enmities, the hostilities that happen among people who are simply against us, literal flesh and blood, out to get you, don't like you, want to take advantage of you, want to scam you, want to want to hurt you in some way, want to put you down, put themselves up. There are the enemies that ought to be friends, the brethren, the beloved family members who hurt you. They're acting, they're not enemies in a technical sense, but they act enemy-like. And when a friend or a loved one acts enemy-like, sometimes it's more painful than if a designated enemy acts enemy like And then there's the inner enemy of ourselves, the things in us that betray life and hope and faith. We go not forth alone against the foe. And you might say what it took for us to make that line come to life, one of the things we had to do is implicitly we had to take it out of the plural and put it into the singular and think through. I go not forth against what foe? And when I can put it into the singular, I'm actually then doing something which is part of the pattern of many, many psalms that they start out singular. They start out with a person's experience and it's distilled. And then as the psalm heads towards its ending, it turns into something we and about us. And a personal personal faith turns into a ability to love other people, include other people. And so you might say the end result is we sing with we. So we get there with how this touches me and touches you. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. Do you know how radical this is in a counseling world? Because there are no other voices, no other counselors out there in the world that say that we, you are meant to be strong. In the strength of someone else, and you are meant to be in the tender keeping care of someone else. No other counselor but a Christian would ever tell anyone this this reality, would ever sing this reality with you, pray this reality for you. So what makes you strong? in a culture that has no one else to be strong in. Well, you need to affirm yourself and trust yourself and build up yourself. You need to, in some manner, uh, rely on yourself and learn to stand up for yourself and learn to think well of yourself and to follow your desires. And there's something fundamentally different in where you look for strength to face the thousand foes of life in a fallen world. And what makes you safe? If you're not in anyone's tender keeping, what makes you safe is if you build a support network and if you learn to set boundaries against toxic people. And you know, it's not as though there's not some distant resonance of truth in those advices that a, a, God, a, a God dishonoring culture offers. But they, the, even that resonance of truth misses its core logic that only makes sense. You know, a social support network only makes sense in the light of what is actually the calling to genuine community between people that will sometimes include some of the toxic people because there's some of the people, well, like us, that Jesus decided to reach out to in our toxicity and decided to, to, uh, to move towards. And you know, again, it does, it's not as though the secular world is wrong to set limits on, on people and avoid doing foolish things, letting them just do simply foolish things. But there's, something, there's a far more profound dynamic if there is someone who keeps you and who strengthens you. Or you look at the beginning of the third stanza. We go in faith our own great weakness feeling and needing more each day, thy grace to know. This is at the center of Christian identity is the awareness of weakness. Our culture doesn't say this to us. Our culture doesn't want to make the foundation point, say what the Apostle Paul says, I boast in my weakness. Because God says to me in my weakness, my grace is sufficient for you. So I can look right in the eye at all the enemies. I can look at my mortality. I can look at the inner enemy, that's the things in myself that betray what is good and true and beautiful. I can look at the evil one. I can look at death. I can look at what's wrong out there and in here and know that what's wrong is bigger than me. And feeling weakness doesn't feel good. I think sometimes we portray the dependency of faith as though it's kind of cuddly. And there are some cuddly psalms. I think Psalm 31 is pretty cuddly, you know, like a weaned child on his mother's lap. Uh, there's a, this comfort cuddliness to dependency. But most often in the Psalms, and I think most often when we are honest with where our lives, and honest with others about their lives, that weakness is actually a terribly disorienting, disheartening, overwhelming experience. The Israelites did not like to have to depend every day for food and water in the desert, where if it didn't show up, they die. It's not fun to be weak. But scripture seems to have this profound Understanding that the heart of our faith is a sense of weakness. Augustine uh, was once asked, what are the three core principles of our Christian faith? And he, used to, he had been a rhetorician, a public speaker, and he, he uh, commented on Seneca's teaching. He said, well, the three principles of rhetoric were delivery, delivery, delivery. And the three principles of Christian faith are humility, humility, and humility it is the humility of need, and the humility of gratitude, and the humility of joy, and the humility of obedience, and the humility. And you, it is, it is a sense of weakness and need, and thus being under that drives us. And then two lines on the last stanza: We rest on Thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise. Again, battle is is only a metaphor, and we have to personalize it, and yet whatever the personal battle that any one of us in this room or any human being that we will ever reach out to, ever talk with, ever converse with, ever care about, they are in a battle. Job says that man is born for trouble like sparks fly upward. And if you've ever had a morning where you woke up and your mind was in utter placid, serene peacefulness. You know, if you didn't start worrying within 15 minutes, you started worrying within 15 minutes about why were you so peaceful, when there's things you ought to be worrying about. It, uh, this is not an easy life we live. And a vision, a Christian vision, that is able to look right in the eye the difficulty, this is what lands, this is what comes down, this is how the high truth connects to where life is lived. Psalm 23 is where I wanna camp in the rest of our time as we think about these issues. Psalm 23 can be overly familiar, can't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down, and so forth, and so forth, and so on. Now, I know when I was growing up, and maybe this isn't so anymore in the church, but we had to learn four things when we were kids. Four things by heart, we had to learn the Lord's Prayer, we had to learn the Ten Commandments, stripped of all the good stuff about God, which, are, which fill the Ten Commandments in actuality. We had to learn the Apostles' Creed, and we had to learn Psalm 23. And there's just kind of the sense that Psalm 23 is for kids. And then, of course, Psalm 23 is for dying people, a source of profound comfort for dying people, read often naturally at funerals and at the bedsides of those who are in the end of life. But as Charles Spurgeon said in a famous sermon of his on this, he said, I needed to eat this bread now. And he dealt with deep darkness emotionally and such. I needed the bread of Psalm 23. I needed to know that the Lord on whom I call is also the Lord who walked through that darkest valley and understands what I feel. One of the ways that I think we can help the meaning of Psalm 23 pop for us and come to life, is by trying to think about the opposite of it. I call these anti-Psalms. And I find that a a, a psalm often pops by thinking about the anti-Psalm. What what does it sound like if this is not true? And you could actually write a thousand different anti-Psalms for Psalm 23. It has many opposites, but here's just one. That uh, was triggered by a, a person that I had, uh, had sought to help. Anti-Psalm 23. And by the way, this also, uh, it's not in my outline, but I will post this for those who are interested. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I'm always Restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle and I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert, I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken and twisted and stuck and I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths, but still I insist, I want to do what I want when I want how I want. That that was the quotation. It's it's a terrifying quotation. It was this woman's motto. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt, the final loss. I know, death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything in the cosmos that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one really has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, that sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. But I have to add, Hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. Now, you hear that, and you realize what Psalm 23 is actually saying and how profound. That anti-Psalm is where people live. And and it's where they live in a way that is profoundly deadly for their welfare. And, you know, I, I don't know what you hear, but what I hear in that psalm is a person who is just scrambling for some kind of meaning, who's living on scraps of friendship that are never trustworthy, in a complete isolation, cosmically, alone in the universe, going at the universe kind of mano a mano, and it's just me and forces that will finally destroy me. And at the same time, there's this willfulness, this stubbornly insistent, me, myself, and I, that just drives through. And then right with that willfulness and pride, there's these profound undercurrents of fear and anxiety, and even like hints of panic in it, it uh, this abyss of despair, uh, mistrust, death awaiting at every turn. It... Uh, it is a terrifying picture, and you think about that anti-SOM, and you think, okay, this is where human beings live in the, in a, they don't necessarily show up and even get a diagnosis for that issue, though these are things that operate in very civil, uh, you know, socially functional people, as well as in people who are addicts or desperate or making suicide attempts and so forth. And you ask yourself, well, is that problem of, of the anti-SOM soluble by a greater degree of self-awareness and self-probing, a, depth, a greater depth of understanding of my personal history and all the things that happened to me? Is that problem soluble by kind of reconstructive human relationships with people who are you know, pretty much on my side. Is there a pharmacological adjustment that actually solves that problem? Are there untapped inner resources that could be helped to get? Is is the problem of the anti-soluble by any theory that ignores God and sin and Christ and hope and repentance, and faith, and mercy, and you realize as we're talking these things how, why why we're right there in this simple complex, because those are all words that have, they're simple, but they have these complexities of meaning as you go into where people struggle. I want us to double back into Psalm 23 for a minute, and I want you to make it personal for yourself. I want you to simply call to mind, you know, what where are the pressure points on you today? Where are the pressure points? I know you have them, right? Because I have them. And the person sitting next to you has them. There are pressure points every single day. Where are they? A place of anxiety, place of guilt or regret, place of self-recrimination, a bereavement or an estrangement, or the threat of bereavement or estrangement, someone has deeply hurt you, just pressures and responsibilities that seem overwhelming, tough spot financially, health-wise. Where's the pressure points? And I want you to simply listen to Psalm 23, and I'm going to I'm going to speak it to you. Psalm 23 is is the, is the voice of faith, but I want to speak Psalm 23 as the voice of promise uh, that faith takes hold of. I want you to think about where the pressure point is, and then let this hit you. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not be in want. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when you walk through the valley, of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because he is with you. His rod and his staff, these comfort you. He prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He anoints your head with oil, your, your cup overflows surely goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever now why does that speak to us why does it speak to me why does it speak to you It's not because there's some, it's not because just there's some just information, right? It's not just an information download. It's, It's not because it gives you an exhaustive Christian understanding of everything going on in your life, a way to tie it all up with a bow, right? It's not that it's a really good theory. That's not why it speaks. It's not, it doesn't speak because it's a strategy, right? There's a way where that psalm, It implies lots of things in response, but actually doesn't give you a strategy, a method, a foolproof technique to solve your problems and chill out when you're getting stressed. Um, It doesn't even promise to fix what's wrong and make it all better, at least not right now, right? I mean, in the very way it starts, It's all these lovely pictures of safety and rest and presence and comfort and someone with you, and then it immediately switches and you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death in which there are 10,000 times 10,000 evils that you could be afraid of. Doesn't make it all better. No. But what it does give you is a person who is with you, and a person who makes all the difference in the world. It gives you the Lord, the living God, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, the Savior of the world. It gives you a shepherd, a person. He comes to you, He walks with you. That changes everything. That, that fact of personal presence is the complete reversal of everything in the anti psalm. That anti psalm is so desperately alone. And Psalm 23 is so wonderfully not alone. It's life and death, light and darkness. It's, it's, there could not be a more stunning contrast. Let me draw, uh, there are many, many things we could draw out. We could spend our day in Psalm 23 and we would not have exhausted it. It, uh, um, it is one of those things that is not just for children and people who are dying. It is for all of life. Um, but let me just mention three implications of various sorts. First is notice the extreme contrast of the overall feel of the true psalm with the anti-psalm. It has a sense of with, withness. Someone there who really cares as opposed to isolation and you're on your own and it's kind of a scary universe or a really scary universe. If you can even face how scary it is. It has humility. Not willfulness. Never says the word humility, but it breathes humility. Not self-will. It has a very interesting kind of quiet courage. It's the kind of thing that can walk into a shadow of death like a surgery where you don't know if you'll wake up out of it. And you're not afraid. You want to live, right? You want to wake up. There's a quiet kind of courage, rather than this running undercurrent of fear and anxiety that just erodes and corrodes and destroys and eats at everything. It has a kind of confidence, a deep, deep sense of confidence, but it's not in myself. Huge contrast with the bravado and the self-assertion and the me, me, me of the anti-Psalm. It has a sense of trust, even when life is very hard, rather than this deep mistrust because life's a jungle. And, and in the end, the biggest contract, contrast of all is there's a contrast between life and death. Absolute contrast in the outcome. One is life, and the, whether, even though we die, and the other is death, even a living death, and then we die. Second comment, this is something implicit in Psalm 23, just as it is implicit in the rest of Scripture. Uh, I want to just touch back on something that Tim Lane also raised from a number of angles in his his talk. Uh, You know, the title of our conference is Changing Hearts, and the heart is a metaphor, right? It's just an organ in your body, but it's a metaphor. Or your whole orient, your fundamental orientation in life to God or something else, as Tim said well. One of the things that, as we as you think about a biblical view of what a human being is, let me give you a, a short definition that is implicit in this psalm, uh, but then once you start to think, to see it, it's everywhere in this psalm. A human being is an active verb with respect to God. Think about that for a minute. You're, so many of the, of the views of a human being in our culture, the voices we hear in the counseling world, portray human beings as fundamentally passive. You know, you're a product of your personal history and your genetics and current biological condition. You know, so if your hormones are raging, if, you're, if you had some lousy, if you were abused, and you have a, a proclivity towards melancholy, that's a summary of who you are. Now, in a minute, we'll say why those grains, of why the partial truth in those things. But it, it's a, it's, it's, those are not a summary of who you are. Those are conditions, situational variables that profoundly affect you. But who you are is an active verb. So the question, who do you love? That's just the first great commandment stood on its head. So it's not only a lamp, but a mirror. You know? So who am I loving Tim, Tim's story at the end of his talk just captured that so well. You know, am I, what am I loving? Instead of the who that I am meant to love, who are you living for? Where do you set your hopes? Where do you take refuge? Where do you find comfort and rest? Who do you look to, to be in control of your world? What voice do you listen to? most fundamentally. What do you seek in life? What are you after? What do you turn to? What do you trust? Those are all active verbs. They happen to be the verbs that all portray how the Bible has us relate to God. And by slowing them down, so it's not just, you know, well, we're called to love God, heart, soul, mind, and mind. We're called to seek the Lord and You slow them down and you realize these verbs are really saying something. They are coming down out of that, you know, blue marble in space right through the wall into the underground, and they are illumining how people live. Part of why Tim has emphasized this, part of why I re-emphasize it, it is that this is one of those places where a Christian gaze on humanness is so different from everything else you hear out there. There are no self-help books that tell you this, not a one, because built into each of these verbs is a notion that there is one whom we should, we are made to love and trust and seek and hope in, and listen to and so forth. The books won't tell you. We're an active verb before God, and we are active verbs towards each other. That's a little bit of the defect in that, you know, sort of build your support network thinking. You're passive. You're just looking out for what's going to make you feel protected, safe, nourished, and encouraged. And great, there is one anothering. We need the help of other people. A support network is a pretty good word for that. But there's a more fundamental question, which is the horizontal dimension. How am I treating other people? How am I living towards other people? How am I loving? Not just as, oh I'm in love or I feel certain feelings. How are you loving? Just the way the Bible puts that. It's the much more challenging question. What are your words doing? These words that are the overflow of your heart. So many human words, so many human words. When you stand back and look at them, you realize that there's this vying going on and people are seeing, there's a kind of moral combat for moral superiority to other people. Any argument has that. I'm right. You're an idiot. Yeah, I might be getting a little bit out of line. But it's only because of what you did. And, and, And if you were just like me, then we wouldn't be having this argument. And there's this, what are our words doing? What's the heart out of which they're overflowing? I tell you, these are questions that a Christian asks. And they are not questions that anyone else really is capable of asking. Because even the attempts, say, in an existential kind of therapy to ask big questions about the meaning of life can never say, well, where are you finding your meaning? And then can also say, have you ever thought that what you're finding your meaning in will perish when you perish? Is there nothing better for which a human being is made? Christian faith asks the really hard questions and it has answers that no one else has. Second comment, active verbs. And then here's my third comment, and the, um, what about those aspects of our physical bodies, our personal history, the way in which uh, there's limitations and pain and difficulty that uh, strongly tempts us, it affects our moods and so forth. What about that? And you know, you could, if you read the Bible in a, in a kind of a quick glance way, you'd say, well, there's nothing in the Bible about Alzheimer's or autism or hypothyroid or postpartum uh, hormonal driven depression. Or, the Bible's just not about that. But then when you actually look more closely, and even when you look more closely right in Psalm 23, you realize there is a worldview within our faith that is able to rightly think about what our world calls nature and nurture variables, the physical body, and your social, cultural circumstance. One of the ways the Bible often argues—I mean, the Bible is—it can be a fatish book, but it is not a really fat book, right? This is this is not a whole library-length uh, encyclopedia. So the Bible is compact. It teaches us not only truth, you might say, positively, but it teaches us how to think about everything else. So, for example, right in Psalm 23, I would say that in in principle, both nature and nurture are mentioned in Psalm 23. How? One of the ways the Bible often teaches us to think is it will give the extreme case and then expect us to do the work to think our way back to the 10,000 variables. So for example, the shadow of death is talking about mortality, isn't it? That we die. There is a sense where death is the single greatest, you might say, disability to the human body. And every other disability, from birth defects to hormonal imbalances, side effects of medication, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is a shadow. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture in small form of something hard that is a problem and a difficulty that is actually a lesser piece of this largest thing which is death itself. So the Christian view of the body actually starts with, you might say, the biggest pathology is that we live in bodies that die, and that dying takes a thousand different forms. So having the greater, you're able to think your way back and understand the squalor of aging or the disabilities that we are born with or Alzheimer's, autism, Hormonal imbalance, just plain old fatigue, inexplicable fatigue. And then nurture factors are also in the psalm, and they're under the category of enemies. There's a sense, again, it's kind of a... If you understand the greater that there are enemies, you can understand all the lesser betrayals, losses, disappointments, bad nurture, people who misled you, the fact that we swim in a culture of lies that we're continually led astray, all of the hurts, disappointments, and things that happen in human relationships. The, the enemy category, it doesn't mean that everybody is an enemy, but you might say there's enemy, and now think about, you might say, shadows of enemy of enmity that filter back through the rest of life. And then the huge thing that Scripture does, as it talks about, is it locates us in a physical body, in a social context, right within Psalm 23, not making any big teaching point about it, just it's the obvious. We die in a physical body, we have people who hurt us. But it is unrelenting in making sure we always see that, you know, if these are nature variables coming in from one side and these are nurture variables coming in from the other, There's a capital P-E-R-S-O-N person in the middle that is non-reductive, cannot be explained simply by nature and nurture variables. That is at the heart of Christian faith. And again, it is one of those things that is so radical. The thing is, every human being knows that deep down inside because nobody lives as if they were purely a body that's out of whack. And nobody lives as if they were purely their personal history, shaped and constrained by the things, the bad experiences that happened to us. People live with a sense of their intentionality, their self, their choices, even if these things are having a huge effect. And the Bible just has this wonderful way of acknowledging a variety of significant factors while never losing sight of the core that there's always a person. Now, It's an interesting fact that when biblical counseling 30 years ago first got a little start into the UK, it was from neurologists. Now imagine that. So people, you know, high level medical personnel, Christians, who, who knew the abilities of the body like nobody else. But they also realized, well, what are we going to talk to with people? Because there's always a person inside even the most severe, destructive neurological illness. Chronic, perhaps, as many of them are. And one final comment on this. It is actually Christian faith that has, Christian faith has always valued as, as good things, proper medical care, helpful social services, legal protections, political justice. In fact, a lot of the history of of Western civilization in the areas of medicine, social services, legal protections, and social justice had a rootage within Christian faith. But Christian faith refused to ever let any of those things, which are secondary goods, trump that there is this primary, fundamental person who lives before the face of God, whom God is willing to walk with unto life and nothing else can do it oh my well i've missed a few spots this is a so we heard the radical anti-psalm 23 we reread psalm 23 <laughs> and this is all you can look at all this and i went revisited our picture so here you've got here's the globe and actually that tube stop diagram was in the picture. Because London was in the picture, just really far away. And as you actually blow it out, these are people that ride the underground. And I know that this picture's a little faint up on the big screen, but what I love about it is these are people that look lonely. They want something. They're in a huge commuter crowd. It's that kind of emptiness, the lonely crowd kind of thing. And it is exactly such people, real people, the people we rub shoulders with every day, that Scripture connects to their lives. Bottom line, what's my takeaway? The large truths connect to the small spaces of personal lives. Our Father in heaven, we thank you very much that you have given us such good. You illumine us. You reveal us to ourselves in ways that can be very humbling, disturbing, and yet you always, you are not the accuser. You are the one who sets free. You invite us to know you and to seek you, and in seeking we find. You are our hope, and I do pray for each of us as we seek to be faithful, as your followers, as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of the Most High, that That the way that we interact with other people, the way that we counsel ourselves, the things we do in our struggles and trials would have that true simplicity that considers thoughtfully all the complexities, knows where to be an agnostic, where to be open, knows where to be firm, and where to believe heartily. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.